We're going to read the scriptures together. So if you've got a Bible, go to 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. As Brian mentioned, we've had a few weeks off our series in 1 Peter called Church on the Margins, and we're diving back into finish it, finishing this series over the next uh, four or five weeks. So 1 Peter chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. The verses will be on the screens and you can follow along behind us. But I'm going to pray for us and we're going to read this part of God's Word together. So please join me as I lead us in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that your Word is living and active. That your Word is like a hammer that smashes rock to pieces. That your word is like a two-edged sword judging our thoughts, our attitudes. That your word is like a seed that produces a, a bountiful harvest of righteousness in our lives. And so Holy Spirit, we pray this morning as we open the word of God that you would speak to us, convict us, change us, transform us, make us more like Jesus. For your glorious name's sake we pray in God's people said, Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 4, we look at the first six verses from this chapter this morning and um, it's tricky and we're not going to have time to cover everything in depth, but we'll see how we go. So 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1, this is what it says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You know, as a, uh, as a teenager, I was, um, I, I did a number of things that were really stupid because of peer pressure. I, I don't know about you, but that was my story, hungry for friendship and attention. And, and so I did a, a whole bunch of stupid things. Some of the dumbest things I did, one of them was, we went to um, Warrywood Blowhole. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's just this giant cliff that goes off into the ocean. And we decided we would jump in there on, a, on the lowest um, spring low tide of the year. Like it was ridiculously high that day. And all of my friends jumped in and I was one at the top. And they're down like, felt like 100 meters below me, egging me on to jump. And I really didn't want to do it, but I jumped anyway just because of peer pressure. I didn't want to be the guy who chickened out standing on the cliff. But probably... The dumbest thing I ever did as a result of peer pressure was um, whilst extremely intoxicated because of, we thought it would be a great idea, taking my mum's work car for a spin around the block and riding it off and crashing into a tree at the age of 14. Now, peer pressure makes us sometimes, at least in my case, do very, very dumb things. The thing is that peer pressure doesn't really go away. When we get older, it just becomes social pressure and we just get better at pretending that it doesn't really influence us all that much. The pressure to conform to cultural norms around us is huge and I think every immigrant feels a sense of that. I remember when I moved to Australia from South Africa, I was nine years old. We moved to a very working class suburb in Wollongong and I got to school and I had a funny accent. 
And I got really sick of people saying to me, can you say this? Can you say that? Laughing at the way I said things. And I realized very quickly that I needed to blend in and my accent needed to change. So my parents said of my brother and I that we lost our South African accents almost within six months of arriving in Australia, just gone overnight because we wanted to blend in. And so car park became car park and Rom became Room, and Grant became Grant, and Tim became Tim, and Hazard became How's It Going? It's just kind of how, and it was real quick, like, because I didn't want to be different. I wanted to fit in. I wasn't comfortable sitting on the fringe of this new culture that we'd come to be a part of. Now, immigrants who moved to Australia from a non-Western background experience this to a far greater degree. Their language, their clothing, their food, often all of that, there's a great pressure on that to change. Unless you can huddle together with people from your background, your ethnic group, and that's what we see happening, not, not just in our city, but across all of the cities in this world, that there's racial clumping that happens of immigrants that huddle together because it's safe there. You know, the church is um, no different from that. We're no different as Christians, as we live in a culture that we feel on the margins of. The church's response often has just been to huddle together into the safety of the Christian bubble. 1 Peter is a letter that is written to a church that finds itself in that situation. And it's a letter about how to live, how to worship Jesus, how to be on mission, all whilst feeling on the outside, all whilst feeling very different to the culture around you. And Peter never gives this church the option of simply huddling together in the safety of the Christian bubble. In 1 Peter, he, he writes about our lives that ought to be lived very distinctly in front of a watching world. This, this whole section from halfway through chapter 2 all the way through to chapter 4 is on on the framework of this idea that Peter builds for us in 2.12, that you would live such lives, such love, live such good lives, honourable lives in the eyes of the watching world that they would see your good deeds and come to worship Jesus. We saw it a couple of weeks ago as we looked at what it looks like to submit to authorities, as what it looks like to work in that, that boss-employee relationship of marriage relationships. Just a few weeks ago, Brian preached on that verse that, our lives ought to have this evident hope about it. That as people would look at our lives, they would see a hope in us that is just transcends circumstance. And they would ask us, where does that come from? That we would be able to share our stories and, and give it a reason for the hope that we have. That's the kind of lives we ought to be living. And so Peter's building this case for a church to live like that in a culture where they feel out of place. But he doesn't expect... That every single person that sees your life that Jesus has changed will all of a sudden flock to you with all these wonderful questions and come to know Jesus. We know that that's not the case. certainly wasn't the case for this church. And so when we get to this section here, Peter begins to anticipate this this question. What, What if people don't respond that way? What if the response is different? The reality is that some people will slander you will speak badly of you, will treat you poorly, all because you call Jesus Lord. So this section at the beginning of chapter 4 is, what do you do if that's the case? It's like the church, is, he, Peter anticipates them saying, Peter, you've got to give us some reason 
to choose to side with suffering and Jesus over sin because if we're honest, sometimes sin is more appealing than the cost of obedience. And so the question I want to ask this morning as we look at this section is when faced with the choice, why should we choose to suffer rather than choose to sin? You know, sometimes I think... um, we, we have this version of Christianity that says, you know, if I, if I serve God, if, I, if I'm a good person, if I read my Bible and say my prayers and, and do all these things, then God will bless me and he'll spare me from suffering. And when he doesn't, we're bitter and angry at God because we feel like he owed us because we'd earned all of that by our righteous works. When the reality is that Jesus never promised he would do that. In fact, Paul says that, For everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not really the selling point for Christianity, is it? Like, come to Jesus and certain things are going to get a bit harder for you. Now, to be fair, certain things will get easier and there's wonderful joys and blessings, but it's not an either or, it's a both and. And so what Peter does this morning is he gives this church four reasons to make that choice between suffering and sin. And the first reason there is in verse number one. The reason is that Jesus did it. Jesus made that choice and chose to suffer. And he's left us an example to follow. So go back to verse one with me. Chapter four, verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Jesus has left us with an example to follow. And Peter's saying, think like Jesus did. How did Jesus think when he was faced with this choice between suffering and sin? Well, cast your minds back to um, the the temptation of Jesus. After 40 days of fasting, no food, no drink, the the enemy comes to him and tempts him, offering him a, a shortcut to glory and Jesus resists, choosing rather to suffer than to sin. Or, or think of the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus faces the scorn of the cross, the pain of the crucifixion, and, and he falls before his Father and he pleads with him, God, is there another way out of this? Yet not my will, but yours. The whole of Jesus' life, his ministry, is one of siding with the Father's will for him instead of choosing his own course. And this is the paradigm, the pattern that Jesus has left for his followers. It's the pattern. It's the cross now and glory later. Pain now, glory later. That is the way of the cross. That is the the way of the disciple of Jesus. I mean, um, Jesus, sorry, in John 15, says this to his disciples. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... They will persecute you also. The way of life for a disciple of Jesus is the way of the cross. Just like our Savior, he has left us an example to follow. Now, now that doesn't mean that we intentionally go out seeking persecution and suffering. It doesn't mean you be a jerk so you get some suffering coming your way. That's not what he means there. But what it means is that we ought not be surprised when it comes. That those things ought not cause us to doubt the love of God, to be bitter at Him for that, because He's warned us. He's told us that this is how it plays out. In fact, Peter goes as far to say that you've been called to this. It's almost intrinsic to your calling to faith. 1 Peter 2.21 says this, For to this you have been called. 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. The first reason that Peter says that this church ought to side, if they were given that choice, to side to suffer rather than to sin is because Jesus did it. You know, I think some versions of Christianity emphasize suffering too much. It's all about suffering. It's all about self-denial. And, and, and that happens at the expense of the freedom that we have in Christ, the, the new life that we experience, the fullness of life, the empowering presence of the Spirit. And yet on the flip side, other versions of Christianity emphasize or don't emphasize the suffering enough at the expense of counting the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. It's a both and this experience for us. But Peter reminds this church, the reason, the first reason, the primary reason that you side with suffering instead of sin is because it's what Jesus did, leaving us, leaving us an example to follow. Jesus did this every single day all the way to the cross. And we'll get back to that a bit later on. The second reason that Peter gives this church to side with suffering rather than sin is found in the second half of verse 1. So go back to verse 1 with me. Uh, I might go back to the start. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, Peter's not saying there that somehow you will get to a point where you will actually never sin ever again. This is not sinless perfectionism, nor is he suggesting that somehow our physical suffering atones for our sin. What I think Peter is getting at here is that when someone chooses, makes a willing choice between sin and suffering and sides with Jesus, no matter what the cost, what he's saying is that that's a demonstration that they've made a clear break from sin. When they willingly choose Jesus, knowing that there's a cost to that decision. Peter says that's a demonstration that the new self is reigning over the old. For many in the church that Peter wrote to, persecution for them wasn't um, beatings, imprisonment or martyrdom. It was way more subtle than that. Persecution for this church was more like maybe their family relationships were affected. Maybe they were cast out of the family, shunned by the family for coming to faith in Jesus. Maybe they lost business deals because now they were a Christian and people didn't want to deal with them in business. Maybe they couldn't get a job because they were a Christian. Maybe their neighbors' relationships there were affected. But for most people, just thought that Christians were weird. In fact, in the first century, Christians were a cannibalistic atheist cult. That's what they thought Christians were. Right? They believed in one God, which everyone else believed in millions of gods. So they were almost atheists. And they ate the flesh and drank the blood of Jesus. So they were cannibals and they were a cult of Judaism. And so to make a decision to follow Jesus at that point was costly for them. But Peter says that for those who have ceased from sin, for those who have walked away from the old self, there is a new motive and desire and impulse to live for Jesus. When we've moved from death to life, when we've been raised with Christ, when we've been made a new creation, we no longer live for the old self. We live for the new. We side with Jesus because he's completely changed our heart from the inside out. New affections, new desires, new motivations, a new heart. 
You know, late last year, um, uh, our brother Steve Vassalo had connected with uh, a Muslim guy who came to faith. Steve had, uh, in a chance encounter, bumped into him, shared the good news of Jesus with him. This guy had come to faith and then he decided that he would tell his family, who was not living in Australia, that he had come to faith in Jesus and his father um, persecuted him greatly for his new faith. His wife and child were back in his home country and his father refused to let them come back to Australia to be with him. And uh, in fact, his father was um, so furious that his son had put his faith in Jesus that he got on a plane and flew to Australia to pressure him to come back to Islam. And, and in conversations back and forth with Steve, this guy said something along the lines of, um, you, you know, I, I feel like because of this persecution and suffering that's happening to me, I feel like I'm on the right track. It feels like I've, I've got this. right. And now that seems like so counterintuitive for someone to say, but here's what happened for him. Jesus so radically changed his heart that he sided with Jesus, no matter what the cost of family, of his father's disapproval for him. And because of that, it was a demonstration to him that I'm on the right track. Yes, this is real. I have a sense of joy in this. No matter what the cost, this feels real to me. Now, to be fair, his story is still playing out. We don't exactly know where he's at and Steve's still following up. So please pray for that young man. But it's a little window into someone who has counted the cost of what it looks like to follow Jesus because they've died to the old self and now they live with new desires, new motivations, new affections. That's the second reason that Peter says that this church ought to side with sin because we live for Jesus now. I love what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I side with Jesus because really this life now belongs to him. The third reason, excuse me, the third reason that Peter gives this church to side with suffering instead of sin is found in verse 3. And he says, you know what? The time for sin is over. This stage is like really. Oh, now it's not going to do it, of course. All right, let's go. Verse, verse 3. The time for sin is over. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, to be fair, verse 3 just sounds like the weekend, and none of that seems culturally out of place in Australia whatsoever. Partying, drinking, sex. But what Peter is saying here is that, you know what, you've done enough of that already. There's, there's been enough parties. There's been enough sexual immorality. There's been enough drunkenness. You know, every single Christian's life is a story that comes in two volumes. Volume one is your life before Jesus saved you and transformed you. And then volume two is your life after Jesus has transformed you. Peter is not saying here, that um, volume one needs at least a couple of stories of a, a night that got a bit wild and things went out of control. And then it's so like once you've filled up the quota of sin, it's like, all right, all right, cool, volume one is done. Now let's get on with the Jesus stuff. Right? That's not what he's saying here. In, in a kind of sarcastic way, Peter is saying, you know, it's not like you need any more time to figure out if that way of life was satisfying. 
You've been there. You've done that. The time for sin is past. It's sufficient. You've already wasted enough time living for yourself. It's time to live for Jesus instead. You know, for some of you who may have a very thin volume one, maybe there's not much in there, maybe you've grown up in a Christian home and you weren't the prodigal that wandered and you know, worked on your testimony for a few years before you came back to Jesus. Sometimes the temptation can be, I've missed out. And maybe I, I, maybe I do need to just go and fill that quota of sin a bit and, and experiment and figure out what it was like so that I can really appreciate the grace of God a little bit more. For those of you who find yourself in that boat, this is, John Piper has a word for you. He says this, You can never sin so little that you could say, I need more time to go back and sin. You can never sin so little that you can say, I need to go back and have more time for sin. No matter how small volume one is for you in your life, small or big, Peter is saying, the time that you had is time enough. I became a Christian uh, at the end of year 11 and my group of mates at school were pretty heavy into both drinking and drugs and for about four years experimented and, and, and partied really hard. And then at the end of year 11, Jesus saved me. He revealed to me the grace of God and showed me that, that in Christ, he was offering me this gift of forgiveness, a fresh start, sins dealt with. And I became a Christian at the end of year 11 and went to school at the beginning of year 12, a completely transformed person. Like people, teachers asked me what had happened to me over the school holidays. But I remember the first time that I slipped back into old habits. It was around about 12 months after I came to faith at that fateful moment of end of school called schoolies. I remember going away with the boys and we're up at the Gold Coast and partying and too much alcohol. And I remember coming back from schoolies after a week of craziness. And, and apart from having this sense of guilt and, and still trying to figure out how the gospel could pay for my sin and, and did Jesus really forgive me for that, that you know, wrestling through those things and the, the guilt... I had this other feeling that, that came with it. And it was almost a feeling of thankfulness that Jesus had rescued me from that, that Jesus had given me greater purpose than, than just partying and, and getting drunk. And, and as I looked back, I realized that I didn't need to go back there. I'd been there and it was empty for me. And what Peter is saying here is that the time that is past is sufficient. You don't need to go back there. Now is not the time for sin. Now is the time to begin to live out your new identity in Christ. Now, let me just qualify that very quickly. To be clear, God is not against sex and alcohol and parties. In fact, he invented probably all three of them, but definitely two of them. In Psalm 104, it says that God gives, blesses his people with wine to gladden the heart. He's not against alcohol. God designed sex but we enjoy those good gifts that he has given us within the boundaries that he's created them for, rather than abusing them, misusing them. And so Peter here is saying, you can enjoy these things, you can enjoy them within the boundaries that I've given them to you for, but the time to abuse them, misuse them, and, and continue to live like this is past. You're done. That's the third reason. The fourth reason that Peter gives 
for choosing suffering over sin is found in verse 4. And that is that he says to the church, you know what? It's not the opinion of the culture that matters. It's actually the judgment of Jesus that matters. This is what he says, verse 4. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that, the, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. I don't know if you've, you've been there at an event, at a party, at a gathering, where your presence and your non-participation kind of just makes you like a walking, talking conscience. Because your actions are in stark contrast to the actions of the people around you. And all of a sudden, people begin to see what they're doing in a new light. And rather than fleeing from that, they try and drag you into it with them. I had a good mate of mine, my best mate, best man at my wedding, who left school at the end of year 10 to become an apprentice electrician, became a sparky and was working for a company, doing really well for himself. But he found it really hard to be a Christian in that workplace. One of the contracts that his company had was um, to work, I think, with a number of other electrical companies in Sydney on replacing the airport runway lighting. It was night shift. They would work when the plane stopped until the plane started kicking off again. And then often the company would put them up in hotels just around Mascot, close so that they could come back and continue to do work the next day. And he used to work with a bunch of guys who gave him a hard time for being a virgin. He was a Christian, loved Jesus, and was a virgin. And so that was they just constantly picked on him for being a virgin. These were guys who on the nights they were put up in the hotel, despite the fact that they had wives and girlfriends, would call prostitutes to the hotel and sleep with them. Now, I don't know why they gave him such a hard time for being a virgin, but my guess is this, that they had nothing to convince him, they had nothing against him, no leverage to stop him from telling wives and girlfriends what they were doing. And so it would be much better for them that he would participate and be on their side rather than be this liability in the middle. His workplace gave him such a hard time about it, in fact, that his boss decided that the work Christmas function, he would get a prostitute to be his date for the night, pay for her, encourage him to lose his virginity. They think it's strange that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, to be fair, that's a fairly extreme example. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes your life your faith, your stance will be met with slander and judgment. Now, for the most part, I think I feel and, and many of you feel that our faith is respected. In your workplace, people respect your faith. But sometimes it will be met with ridicule and pressure. And when that pressure comes, when your actions, your stance, your belief, your faith are called into question, we face a choice. Will I side with Jesus here and count the cost or will I cave in? Peter says to this church, don't be swayed. Don't be swayed in this. Remember that Jesus is appointed as judge. And his estimation is the one that matters most. Now, I just want to briefly touch on verse 6 there. Um, a very confusing verse, but I think... Um, 
easily explained. It says there, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, is that the purgatory verse? Is that the verse that means that if you die, Jesus is going to give you another opportunity after you die. He's going to come and preach the gospel to you so that in this somehow halfway home between heaven and hell, you get another opportunity to come to Christ. Many people think that this verse is just that. But I think what Peter is saying here is that the gospel was preached, past tense, to these people. They're dead now, but they were alive then when the gospel is preached to them. So that the gospel was preached that though judged in the flesh the way people are, that though people would look at their lives, look at their stance, look at their faith, judge them, malign them, put them on the fringes of society, the gospel is preached that they might live in the spirit the way God does. That's what I think Peter's saying there. You know, there are some here this morning who for you, bearing the name of Christ is not advantageous at all. It makes work hard. It makes family hard. It makes your study difficult. It makes parenting difficult, maybe. People slander you. They exclude you. And you feel on the fringes of whatever group you're a part of because of the name of Jesus. There are some of you who feel that acutely. And Peter's reminder here to this church and to you is remember that Jesus is judge. His opinion is the one that matters most. The persecutors will have to stand before Jesus and give an account for their life, as will you. But you will stand with the blood of Christ covering you. You know, the gospel frees us from fear of other people. You know, my, my friend, this um, electrician, he may have been labelled prudish and tight-laced because he was a virgin, So what? It's not the opinion of his workmates that that matter at that point. It's the opinion of Jesus. And he knows that Jesus says, you're a child, loved, saved, redeemed, part of my family. That's Peter's reminder. Faith in the face of persecution is a testimony that God is good and a declaration to a watching world that Jesus is our greatest treasure. Faith in the face of persecution is a testimony to the goodness of God and a declaration to a watching world that Jesus is our greatest treasure. May that be true of us. We are God's holy people. We learned that back in 1 Peter chapter 1. As he who called you is holy, so be holy, be distinct, be set apart. And because we are, that makes us different at some point. There are things about us that we believe, the way we live, that make us different from the culture around us. Not entirely, but there are certainly things that set us apart. And Peter says, live this identity out. Let people watch you live this out. And some will be drawn, but others will deride you because of your faith. And when that happens, side with Jesus. Side with Jesus. That's that's what he's saying here. You know, so often the automatic response when someone has a go at us or persecutes us is to fight back, to retaliate, to try and humiliate them back at some point because they've humiliated us. Peter says, don't do that. Respond like Jesus did. But you know, that, that pressure, that, that 
that um, current that forces us to conform to the cultural norms around us is so often why Christians retreat to the safety of the church and just huddle together because there you feel accepted, there you don't feel on the margins, you feel loved. But here's the deal. Peter never gives the church that option. He never gives the church the option of simply just huddling together where it's safe and comfortable. He says, live out your identity in full view of the culture that people might see your good deeds and glorify Jesus on the day he visits us, even if it means counting the cost. It's not easy being a Christian sometimes. And I think every single day, whether in small ways and some of you in significant ways, will face a choice. A choice to either side with Jesus or a choice to cave in and sin. I think of the choice that friends of ours had to make when they went for their um, 18-week scan of the child they were having and the doctor said to them, your child will be born with Down syndrome. My advice to you is that you abort this child right now. And they made a choice at that point. Not to sin, not to abort this child, but to keep the child. And they suffered for it. Now, I'm not suggesting that every single family that has a child born with a disability is joyless because there is much joy. There is much joy in children with disability, but it's hard. It's really hard. If you know of people who have had children born in their family or someone ends up with a disability at some point later in life, it is hard work. And here is a family who's faced with a decision. Will we sin? Or will we side with Jesus and count the cost of what it looks like to do that? Now that's a, an example, not so much of persecution, but just of being part of a broken world. But there are many examples of, of persecution. And, and maybe for you it's that not being a part of the drinking culture that exists at work or at uni doesn't mean that people call you names and, and, and are not friends with you, but sometimes there's just little relational consequences for that choice. You know, you're the one who, when everyone goes in for a round, you're in there for the first two, maybe three rounds if you're adventurous, and then you kind of like pull out. It's like, oh, I'm out, and everyone thinks you're tight, or you just, I'm on coke for the rest of the night. And sometimes there's just little consequences from a decision like that. Relational consequences. Maybe it's that um, your refusal to be dishonest at work is a cost for you. Your industry, your workplace is something that dishonesty is actually rewarded. And your boss wants you to lie. And so when there's a job or a project that comes up that requires someone to lie, you don't get it because he knows that you're going to be honest. I think of a story of a couple that we knew from our last church at um, Multicultural Bible Ministry out in Western Sydney who um, decided that they wanted to uh, buy a pizza shop and so they went and they checked out the business. They had the accountants look at the books. They had the legal team do all the paperwork. And they bought this pizza shop, which to their knowledge was a very successful business, making good money. And they bought the shop and they started to run the business and the sums didn't add up. They weren't making the same money that the previous owners had. And when they went back and dug a bit deeper, they realized that the previous owners had cut a whole bunch of corners, not paying people tax, just cash in hand, all this kind of stuff. 
they were faced with a choice. Do they continue to operate business according to the law or do they cave in, side with Jesus and count the cost? This family counted the cost. Their business fell. They lost everything. They filed for bankruptcy. All because they continued to choose to count the cost of following Jesus no matter what the cost. I was thinking about how this applies to me personally, and there's a number of ways, but one, as a preacher, is the pressure is to not talk about things. I mean, the pressure is don't talk about a sermon that involves so much sin that depresses people and just tell them nice things and send them out full of the Spirit and pumped up, right? There's a pressure to just water down judgment, not talk about hell, all that kind of stuff. There's a choice. All of us will face choices some small and some significant, where we will have to decide, will I sin? Will I count the cost of following Jesus and suffer for this decision? And I want to tell you that the heroes of the faith, the people that God delights in and loves, are those who make decisions to put Jesus first, no matter what the cost. Think of the story of, um, uh, I know it's an old one, but our brother Ethan Viglione, who... Um, when he was a young kid, was at a sleepover with his friends. I haven't even asked him permission to tell this story, so sorry, Ethan, I'm just going to tell it anyway. Such a good story. He's at a a sleepover with his buddies and um, his parents. He knows that his parents don't want him watching M15 Plus movies, and the guy said, we're going to put this M15 Plus movie on, and Ethan says, you know what, I'm I'm not going to watch that movie. My my parents don't want me to. It's not right. I'll I'll just go sit in the other room. You guys can watch the movie. I'm just going to sit in the other room and and read and play by myself. And, And I think... If the story is correct, Ethan, the guys turned the movie off and came and joined you. Yeah. What a, I mean, what a wonderful story. But you know what? It doesn't always play out like that. The heroes of the faith are those people who sometimes make small decisions, sometimes make significant decisions to put Jesus first, no matter what the cost. You know, in the end, peer pressure, social pressure, the, the, the tide of the cultural flow really boils down to this issue of fear of man. When God is small and insignificant and the opinions of people are big, we will cave. We will side with what the opinion of people think rather than God's opinion. And so the solution to fear of man is to develop a healthy, growing fear of the Lord. To understand his character, his glory, his majesty, his holiness, his worth. To meditate on that, to fear the Lord, that God in our minds would be big, that his opinion would matter, and that peoples would be small. In uh, John chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes my life from me. It wasn't the betrayal of the disciples of Judas, the denial of Peter that led Jesus to the cross. It wasn't the jealousy and false trial of the Sanhedrin that led Jesus to the cross. It wasn't Pilate's weakness and fear of man that led Jesus to the cross. Jesus made a choice. He chose to suffer. Choosing the path of suffering, setting his face towards Jerusalem, For the joy that was set before him, he endured 
the cross. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The gospel means that when we are faced with that decision and we choose sin, we choose not to side with Jesus. We fall back in our old habits. The temptation of the sinful nature wins. When we do that, the gospel means that we have someone who covers our sin, takes it away, pays for it and renews us. The righteous for the unrighteous. Friends, are you holding on to sin this morning? Have you chosen to obey the sinful old you rather than Jesus? This morning what we need to be reminded of is that there is freedom in Christ. The good news is that Jesus chose to suffer for you. He chose to take your suffering upon himself, to die on the cross for our sin, our rejection, our brokenness and gift us his Righteousness, his perfection. So today, friends, bring that sin to the altar of Christ and leave it there. But don't walk out of these doors and take that sin with you. Because we have a Savior who chose to suffer for our sin. He chose to walk in holiness. That the righteous life that he lived would be laid down and given to you and he would take upon himself our unrighteousness to bring us to God. That's the good news of the gospel. And we celebrate that gospel here at Anchor. We're going to do that now as we remember the Lord's Supper. To my right and left are two two stations with uh, small bits of bread and some grape juice. And they're both symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. And so we invite you to come forward and to take the bread, dip it into the grape juice and eat it, remembering that the righteous one laid down his life for your unrighteousness, that a great exchange took place, that the blood of Christ covers us. And we're going to respond in worship. We invite the band to come up now. We're going to praise our great God for the gospel of grace. Let me pray. Father God, we, we thank you that Jesus chose to suffer. We thank you that Jesus chose your will in the garden where he was faced with that choice to take the easy way out or to do your will. We thank you that for our sake, the righteous one died for the unrighteous to bring us back to you. Father, help us be a people who would choose to side with Jesus no matter what the cost. Father, for those right now who are experiencing the reality of that, that it is hard, please remind them of the truths that Peter reminds this church. Remind us of the cost that our Savior paid. Remind us that he is the judge. Remind us that in the end it is worth it to follow Jesus. And we ask this in his strong name. Amen.